This is a Hoff Studios podcast. All right. Welcome, Lauren Taos. How are you this morning? I'm so well. I'm so happy to be here with you finally. Are you in Venice, California? I sure am. Amazing. I love California. I miss it. It's where I'm from as well. Oh, yeah. Where? I'm from Northern California, Walnut Creek, but we lived in LA for a few years as well. Nice. And now you're in Florida, yeah? Yep. Now I'm in Miami, Florida. I love it here. So I want to introduce you to the audience. You are a licensed psychotherapist, a psychedelic assisted therapist, an educator, and an activist. You are trained to work with both psychoactive compounds, which are synthetic psychoactive drugs, and plant medicines. You lead Embodied Life, a group therapy practice that also offers immersive educational programs for clinicians to learn psychedelic-assisted therapy and integration. (laughs) How old are you? I'm 40. Sam, that is an impressive body of work. Congratulations. November, it's wild. But I feel like all the self-love I've learned, which is so key to loving other people, has a a reverse aging quality, or so I tell myself. It's working. Congratulations. And you have a daughter? or I know you have a child. Yes, like children in in the ways in which I work and support other beings. And I think a lot of that is is a a type of parenting. But uh, no, no. no beings of my own just yet. It's, it's a, it's a big prayer, but, uh, I'm very, I'm very happy with what I have right now. I must've seen you as somebody else's child. Cause I'm I swear I saw you niece. with a child and I was like, Oh, she has a kid. Ah, your niece. Okay. That's what it is. Um, I love one of the quotes from your website and I wanted to just jam off that for a few minutes. Our wounds are often the openings into the best and most beautiful parts of us. David Risho. What does embodied mean to you? What is going in? I know that's a really big emphasis in your work and in the work of psychedelics. It all happens within, right? Within the cosmos, within ourselves, within our mind, within our hearts. But what does it really mean to you? Why is that your why? My work is is predominantly inspired and motivated by the transmutation of my own suffering. And so much of that played out on the field of my own body. I feel like I was a walking war zone for half of my life. And getting into my body and living in our bodies is is rather renegade in, in a world that teaches us to divorce from our own somatic wisdom and in a world that teaches us not to feel, right? We don't, we don't think feelings. All feelings have a somatic counterpart, and and that's body-based. So learning to befriend form, learning to to kind of get into my arms and my legs and my tush and my eyes uh, is a spiritual experience. You know, know, none of us are going to get out of this thing called life alive. And and so spirituality, while we're here, is is to me about descension. It's about being in, in the vessel and not about abdicating it. So embodied is about how I live and how I want us to live and and us to appreciate and recognize that our bodies are are pieces of earth, little bits of the planet that we get to steward. 
and and to do so in a kind, good way, in a loving, boundaried way is something that I've learned. And in learning that, I have really unlocked so much happiness and health. Um, and my happiness is, is, is entirely contingent on my ability to play the rest of the emotional keyboard. Mm -hmm. Like I credit my joy to my grief, mm -hmm. my capacity to ride the tides of, of sadness, anger, and fear. Mm -hmm. and, and to kind of just like be a good sailor on, on the seas of this life experience. And embodied, it's also a play on in. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in training, it's in relationship, it's in spirituality, it's in meditation, it's in, in life. Mm -hmm. It's in the work. And yeah. And, and in, 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 you know, I, I had a conversation just recently about the word work. Uh, the word work is so hypercharged, I think, with a culture of, of hyper productivity and hustle. And it's like more, 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 never quite enough. And there is effort that's involved in the necessary excavation and elevation and celebration of the human spirit in, in living in the highest alignment with what is true for each of us. Um, but it's, it's good. It's, it's good. And it's wildly satisfying. So, um, you know, mm. I, I'm never a graduate. When we work with the psychedelic compounds, we immediately open the doors, which quite frankly are always open, but we have access to the, to the reality of the fact that our experience is always informed by intergenerational, transpersonal and collective content. It's, it's never just an individual mm. having a discrete yeah. set of experiences. So, so the work is never done. It's, it's, it's yeah. like the work unquote, in quotes is, is never complete for anybody. anybody. Totally. So in your, in your work, you have a ketamine clinic, correct? I have a, a small group practice with a focus on ketamine assisted psychotherapy. Yes. And so what does the integration look like for that? Well, integration is the name of the game when we're talking about this type of uh, intervention. And I, I like to say that good psychotherapy should be psychedelic in nature. And, and the word psychedelic just means mind expansion. So with or without medicine, the healing arts are mind expanding and, and they should widen the proverbial aperture around how a person experiences, sees, understands, knows self, other life and, and, and the, the, the universe really. And, and then the integration is, is how we move that forward. Life is an action sport, not a cognitive exercise, right? <laughs> and, and so how do we integrate? And, and, and the word integration, Danielle, of course, implies disintegration. So yep. we, we fracture and we splinter, we cut off from parts of ourselves a lot. And, and how do we bring all aspects of our diverse, conflict-ridden, peaceful, expansive beings together in a good way. That's integration. And, and integration is also, uh, as I mentioned, it, it's, it involves action. And, and it generally involves action with other people. So, so with relationships, relationship with self first, and then, and then with others. Uh, what are mm -hmm. the conversations that need to happen? What are, what are the, um, the boundaries that need to be drawn? What are, what are the, um, the questions that need to be asked? 
Yeah. What needs to be reprioritized and reorganized in your life in order to move forward with this integration, right? In order to move forward with this, you know, new opened pathway that you've created totally through the psychedelic, right? Experiences of, of mystic mysticism, so just divine communion, uh, and experiences of love are, are the two most generative in creating positive treatment outcomes. So we are really in one shared field and, and it's a, it's a really important to just remember that. You know, I was reading about some of the crossroads that you've had in your life and they are similar to mine. Like we have yoga in common, but we also have an eating disorder in common. And for me, I battled with it when I was younger, a little, I would say like middle school, early high school. And then it was like a total forgotten memory for like a long while. And then when I had my daughter, it reemerged. And it wasn't until I started microdosing psilocybin and working with a hypnotherapist that I was really able to regain um, normalcy around my eating and my behaviors and my perception of it. And it still waxes and wanes the, the triggers. So I'm really curious what um, your experience with eating disorders and the healing of that. And if, if psychedelic therapy has worked for that and just what your own journey and perception of eating disorders are, what they are. Hmm. So eating disorders are fundamentally issues of, of safety in my mind, uh, that play out in control and, uh, efforting to kind of manage what was unmanageable. Uh, I know for me, I, I developed an eating disorder um, for that reason, right? I, I was trying to manage what was unmanageable or what, what felt unmanageable to me and my family. Uh, I grew up with a, a sister who was 13 years older than me and and my sister had cystic fibrosis. She died when I was 20. So she, she was, you know, walking around with, with a death sentence. Of course, we all have that. But with a much shorter kind of capacity and understanding for what her life could look like and would look like. And so my family was very, my parents were really worried about her. And she was also, you know, in high school and I'm going to die at 18 was the prognosis. She lived to be 34, but she was partying a lot and getting into trouble. And my dad was, you know, scared and that looked like anger. And my mom was like very overwhelmed. And my mother was also a complex PTSD case and really struggled to, to be present with it all. And there was, you know, fighting and, and there was fear. And, and, and I didn't know how, how to deal with any of it other than to control and, and perform. So I was a straight A student um, and, and I you know, sort of stopped eating. Um, my experience with an eating disorder was really in, in the realm of anorexia. I had definitely my periods of binge eating and, and I, I, I could eat like an outrageous amount of food. Uh, I, I tried purging. I couldn't get myself to do it. I'm, uh, you know, crying over the toilet bowl, trying hard, but fortunately that wasn't in, in my process. Uh, it was a very, very heavy impact on, on the physiology of the body for bulimia. Generally speaking, eating disorders are very, very hard to treat. Uh, they're, they're some of the most sticky pathological processes out there. And it's, you know, for me, you, you mentioned our, our shared love of yoga. <clears throat> yoga for me was my gateway drug. 
I, I started and, and yeah. I still am in downward facing dog every day, pretty much about five days a week in a very yeah. devoted practice of, uh, of being in the vessel. And of course, yoga just means connection. So how, how I learned to connect with, with mm -hmm. my being in a good way was on my mat. And I came to my mat <clears throat> totally starving, pretty dissociated from my body, uh, really unhappy. And yoga helped me to, to breathe and to reconfigure my connection with this thing, this body. Um, I also was deeply supported with mm -hmm. good psychotherapy. And uh, I went to OA, uh, Overeaters Anonymous, which is a, a branch of the Alcoholics Anonymous program. And uh, I was really deeply supported by two sponsors there who I am forever in gratitude for. Uh, it wasn't until years later mm -hmm. that I you know, had already stabilized my, my weight because at my bottom, I, I was you know, probably 50 pounds less than I weigh now and I'm tiny. Um, yeah, it was wow. really not okay. It was really, really not okay. And fortunately, that part didn't last that long. Uh, I did experience amenorrhea in you know, high school, early college years, and uh, that came back. I'm grateful to, to be a woman with a moon. And, and, and that's always a barometer for me when, when I'm working with somebody. Like, are they, are they mm -hmm. menstruating as a woman? Uh, of course, eating disorders are, are not female-specific, but uh, when I am working with a female in, in this kind of category, I want to make sure that their body is, is signaling health in that way. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're, we're in, in this timeline, we're, you know, about 22 years ago. So, so for me too, it's, it's, it's been like a, a, a circuitous path of, of continued healing. And, and I know that whenever the thoughts present, whenever there's more obsession with, my, my body and what I look like, that it's sort of a red light to look at what else is going on in my life. And, and you mentioned that there was kind of a resurgence mm -hmm. after becoming a mother and, and what a wild transition that is. Yeah. I, I, I hope to one day understand that mm -hmm. and then to know that from, from my own kind of lens. And, and, and that, that is a psychedelic experience. That's a completely life altering, life shifting. Totally. I, I think being born and having kids are the two most psychedelic experiences on the planet that a person can have. And you know, what's interesting is that it wasn't quite, it wasn't just having a child and becoming a mother, like the birth of the mother and the new life that you, not just the child that you crave, but the new lifestyle, like that is, that was one dynamic. There's also physiological, hormonal, experiential things that are happening as the new mom, right? But we were also, the trigger was when I was a teenager, I moved from California and we lived in like three different states within a year. Um, my dad was a missionary and we were super religious. And then simultaneously when I had, when I got pregnant with my daughter and then I had my daughter, we were living between Miami, New York and LA. And so it was, and we were like every few months we were changing states, like for a few months at a time, opening restaurants and bars with my fiance and so it was just this really subtle trigger. Like my life looked totally different. Like we weren't living paycheck to paycheck anymore. This was all by choice, but something in the resonance felt the same to me, it felt out of control. I felt ripped away from my community away from my people as most new moms do anyways. 
and just going through all those the physiological hormonal and then the variables in my life with no support system was wildly triggering and for instance and mine was bulimia so i could like you said i could eat massive amounts of food and i could purge it and i think i i taught myself or i learned when i was young like 13 i just overate one day and it just came out and so it's just interesting because it's i've done so much spiritual healing and family healing and food, you know, much like alcohol, it's just so normalized. The way that we consume it, the way that it's shared, the way that we perceive it is so nuanced. And so it's a wild ride to be on a healing journey with an eating disorder for anybody out there listening. There's obviously so much hope and so many resources as you shared. And there it's just, it's a healing journey that you're put on. Some people get diagnosed with cystic fibrosis and some people come here to, I believe some people come here to experience a battle with the most common thing on earth, food, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And I still have, you know, residue, like for the most part, I I actually love Mm -hmm. my body. Like I I love how my body looks. It started with just an appreciation for function, right? Like, wow. Thank you. Lungs. Thank you. Heart. Thank you, blood. Mm. Thank you, bones. Thank you, senses. Thank you, thank you. And 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 ultimately, like I, I also appreciate like how my body looks. And you know, beauty is such an interesting mm-hmm. thing, and and certainly the, the prescribed currency for women in our culture, and and that's a problem. But um, you know, beauty. I'm, I'm much more interested in beauty as an experience than as consumption mm-hmm. or consumption. Right? Like I want to feel beautiful rather than be defined as such by somebody else. I also think it's really important. I'm 38, you're 40. And and the people out there listening are probably similar in age, but I have friends who are 70 and 80 years old. I met this beautiful woman in Topanga. She's 78. She's an author. She was out there having a coffee with me, dancing with my daughter. And I just kind of had this real awakening that you know, what we work so hard in our twenties and our thirties to have this perceived beauty and we allow society put those standards on us and it's so fleeting, you know, it's not those standards that we hold ourselves to and that society holds ourselves to. You just, you cannot battle time, you know? And I think it's really important to change our standard and our measure of beauty. It's really essential to our longevity and to our happiness, right? Absolutely. And there's certain places that have more emphasis on like the the six standards and places that are kind of more stripped away. As a Jewish woman, I, I really love that that spirituality is the elevation of physicality. It's the elevation of form. It's it's about how we eat, it's about how we drink, it's about how we dress. It's about um, being in right relations with and and sanctifying the the material realms, right? Like it's so much a part of your culture. Totally. I mean, it's it. There are prayers for it all, and you know, to me, my mm-hmm. my liberal interpretation of Judaism's kind of one God is like I don't care what you call him, her, it, they, them. Like there's like one ultimately mm-hmm. like shared truth that 
has many paths and names. And, you know, for me, like digging into my own practice and rituals and traditions that have been uh, practiced and stewarded by my ancestry for thousands of years feels really good. And, and, and we all have that within us uh, as options and the capacity as well to create new ones, which is also very exciting. So exciting. I'm in, I'm in love with your path. I just learned that your dad is your primary prescribing medical doctor, AKA Dr. Dad, Stephen Taos. He's been practicing for over 50 years, your grandfather before him and your father and his two brothers. They're all doctors. He, what I listened to the podcast with you two last night, I was just going to drop in for like two minutes. It was riveting. He's so amazing. So how did wow. all this culminate with you guys working together and you rebelliously getting him into psychedelics? Like, how did that actually go down? One of my favorite poems is Mary Oliver's Wild Geese. And the first line of the poem says, you do not have to be good. And good in, in quotes, like, what does it mean to be good in our cultural understanding, right? It's like, yes, be good, but be you, like be authentic. There's so much like that we're asked to conform to. There's so much authenticity we're asked to divorce from. There's so much pressure to, to be something that perhaps we're not. And I certainly felt that. Uh, my, my father spent his life being good and in, in ways that, in some ways that didn't serve his, his truest self. And I also, the same, it was not until my early 30s that I had any psychoactive experience. And immediately after I had my first, I shared it with my dad. By the way, that first experience was with my brother. So for me, psychedelics in the family is, is, is the, the, the zone I'm most passionate about in, in the space, or at least one of. Anyway, after that first journey with my brother, I, I shared about it with my father. What and was the journey on? It was with Armand's medicine, and I don't know if you're familiar with him. He has lots of facilitators around the world, uh, and it, it was a combination of like a, a heart and body-based medicine, and uh, a little bit of mushroom ayahuasca. So it's it's not not a format that I work in anymore, um, but it was really generative for me at the time. And my, um, mm -hmm. I, I shared about this with with my, with my father. And he said, Oh my God, like, what are you doing? Are you, you're doing drugs? Like, are you okay? Like, I'm worried about you. This is scary. What's happening. And, and, uh, I, and, and he said it like this, Danielle, he said, you fucking doing drugs. Cause he's a little user. You heard his accent. You know, his he, accent he was is amazing. It's like my favorite thing. My heart melts every time he speaks. He is, you can't take the Bronx out of the void. And he ultimately ended up trusting my, my guidance in so much as track the research, read these books, do these things, dad, and came to understand that, yes, there are clinical applications for psychoactive substances and predominantly schedule one drugs. And simultaneously, my father said, I don't need that. So I continued to invite him. And, you know, it's often a rookie move to go on a conversion agenda. And, and I definitely did that with my dad, but it was over years and, and I really just had a vision and I held it for him. And at a certain point, I had really kind of let it go 
but I, I was training. I was, I was doing very legitimate trainings with maps, with uh, ketamine training center, with, uh, you know, more shamanic realms, sharing about all of it very candidly with him. And of course he was present in many of my journeys and eventually he said, yeah, I'm willing to have an experience. And this was years, by the way. And then he had an experience and- And how old was your dad years, at this point? 75. Say 75 wow. years old. He had his first psychedelic experience. And I am so proud of that because it's proof that an old dog can learn new tricks if the dog wants to learn. And, you know, my, my dad, Danielle, also went to psychoanalysis for decades. And he read all the self-help books and did all the things and was really efforting and investing like time, energy, money into his own personal growth and development. But it wouldn't, it, it couldn't and didn't move from the realm of cognition to, to body, to behavior. It was, it was, it remained. In, 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 Which is the story for so many of us. Absolutely. I mean, my dad says he's never been happier. And, and my dad is, is, is very much a transformed being. Uh, his wisdom is dialed, his capacity to listen to me, other people, the planet. He's far more generous. He has more fun. He listens to music. He's like, you know, he's, he's happy. And, and he also, you know, he's, he's 78 now and I, and I have multiple centurions in my, and uh, on my father's side. So I, I expect for my father to live a lot, lot longer and, and he's very healthy. And simultaneously, like he's 78 and he's in, in, in the space of appropriately kind of looking at death. And prior to his experiencing with psychedelic medicines, he was very much an atheist. And, you know, I, I can say that I probably was an atheist as a kid, too. Uh, I just, none, none of religion as it was kind of shared made any sort of sense to me. But he now it has some sense of spirituality, a sense of continuity of, of, of energy beyond the iteration that this body uh, represents. And I think having that is, is such a beautiful uh, gift as one approaches like the, the end of their life in that's decades from now, but like, just to know, like, you know, there's something else. It's okay to die. You don't have to like drag your feet down the hallway of death. Absolutely. Um, they're seeing that in research now that this, that psychedelic assisted therapy is, is excellent for that for especially terminally ill patients, right? Absolutely. Because people have an experience like, you know, it's, ketamine, for example, is really good for end of life care and at higher doses of ketamine, not, not, um, uh, anesthetic doses, but like psychedelic dosing of ketamine creates a, a, a dissolving of ego. So to really dissolve the sense of self gives a person an experience of what death might be like. And many people have, as I've already mentioned, mystical experiences in these realms, an experience of, of the divine uh, and others just kind of like a, a sense of nothingness and, and, and to have recall of the nothingness, if even if there is nothing, that nothingness is okay. And, and then perhaps even more that like there, there's, there's something deeper to commune with which I think, you know, certainly the plants are also really good teachers of that and, and ambassadors for uh, what else might, might be coming for, for each of us. Yeah. I want, I want to get into the, like the nitty gritty of ketamine and, but so we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment, but I would love to understand. So like when 
so you started having your psychedelic experiences around what age? When was this? Um, or how long ago? I would say about seven years ago. Well, how did you get into to actually working in the field of psychedelics? What was the pivot? My, my first step was to become a yoga teacher at the age of 18. I, I then tried a bunch of different jobs, but ultimately I was always the girl in a big conversation and people love to tell me their things and I love to listen to it. Uh, I, I, I love humans. Humans are my favorite animal. I love people so much. And so through my own therapy, my therapist at the time, I was in New York City, said, Lauren, become a therapist. Uh, or she encouraged me along that path and, and I followed. Then it was, wasn't until years later that I became present to the ways in which psychoactive medicine, psychedelics can weave with, with psychotherapy. And it was uh, maybe four, four years ago that I did uh, uh, MAPS, uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD training. I did that in Israel, which was really special. And I had a very, very amazing cohort. Rachel Yehuda was a student in that same training. She's a a legend. I, I would invite everyone to check her out. She's the preeminent epigenetic researcher, which basically is the study of how our experiences are informed by our our parents and there's there's science and biology to that so the russian dolls of our being is it's a real thing and um from there i then was prompted to do ketamine training and at the time i looked at my friend natalie ginsburg she's the director of global impact at maps like she had 17 heads because i had seen the way that ketamine is engaged with in recreational contexts and uh, and it kind of scared me and i didn't understand it but i i trusted her and went into deeper learning and the training was beautiful. Uh, my mentor, Phil Wolfson leads it through the Ketamine Training Center. He's a- the author of the Ketamine Papers, which is sort of the seminal text that we have these days. And mm-hmm. um, then I just went running and, and it's been since then that I've been focused, 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 specifically on ketamine as the only legal me- menu option right now. And, um, mm-hmm. and I've been able to do a lot of really good work with a lot of people that I've been blessed to serve. I just think that is such a full circle moment to be able to like, to go on the path that you went on that was holistic and different and finding yourself through yoga to kind of the Russian doll effect that you had all these doctors in your back pocket and all this lineage of information and information within like laden within Mm -hmm. your DNA. And then to have the ability to legally at this moment in time while your father is still very active in his medical work to be able to open a clinic together is just wild. It really is. (laughs) It's so cool. Like 99.9% of people come to therapy with some degree of mommy daddy issues, right? Like the architecture of our being is family. And yeah, you know, an, an area that I'm very excited about is widening the work outside of a dyad, outside of the one on one. Because so often people are having conversations with their therapist that they need to have with a family member or someone that's very close. And, you know, it's, it's my work and my focus to support that. And I often bring in other family members or, uh, you know, chosen family members to, to really expand the work into the field of life, right? So let's get into this a little nitty gritty for the, the people that really don't know what ketamine ketamine technically is, 
who it's good for, what it's good for, the benefits, the side effects. Ketamine is a top 10 global medication. It's used around the world. It's incredibly safe. It is a dissociative anesthetic used often in uh, pediatrics. It's also used in veterinary medicine. So yes, it is a horse tranquilizer. People often like to talk about that. It has a history of being used on battlefields. It's very dose dependent. So you can give someone an anesthetic dose, right? So it's, it's designed to really like completely like numb them and like take them out. You can give them a person dose that's psychedelic. So they're really going to uh, have a, a trip of sorts and you can work with it in lower doses where it essentially acts as an uh, social lubricant, as an anxiety reducing element. Now, in, in the space of mental health, ketamine has been most researched for the treatment of uh, depression, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, uh, PTSD, epic for suicidality and end-of-life care, as we've already discussed. And there are many good ways to work with this medicine as a clinician. I, I have seen it. I know, I know it. Predominantly in my practice, I work with psychedelic dosing. So I am deliberately disrupting a person's ordinary mind. I am purposefully creating uh, an experience that will open up consciousness. And every experience will be different every time. So it's unpredictable and working in the space of consciousness is quite delightful and, and also part of the challenge in studying it and researching. But uh, there are variables that one can control and, and, and look deeper into some of these more important questions around how are we working with these medicines to treat pathological processes. Um, as I mentioned, again, I work typically in psychedelic dosing, but I also work in anxiolytic dosing. So in, in that lower dose, I'm, I'm working to really disarm a person's defenses in order to provide more access to parts of the self that might typically not be online or available or, or perhaps more, more guarded and like not willing to talk. So <clears throat> In, in the psychedelic dosing sessions, those are three hours. The first hour, there's a lot of intention setting, and I invite people to, to really be clear about why they're doing what they're doing. And there's always going to be work on the back end. I'm not ever giving a person medicine if I haven't built a therapeutic dynamic with them uh, prior to that. But once we do get into that space and place with ketamine, there's an hour of kind of reflection, intention setting, working with any protector parts that might be resistant and, and doing any other typical regular psychotherapeutic work. And the second hour, the person will have the medicine, will, will uh, take, will partner with the medicine. I, I like to work with intermuscular injections. So that's where Dr. Dad comes in or a physician uh, that I partner with. And, and during that period, a person is really going to be exploring on their own. So there's going to be an iFold and a headset and a curated playlist designed to, to guide and support their journey. The medicine lasts in the system, irrespective of dose, around 45 to minutes to an hour. So higher dosing, I want a person to like deep dive inside and explore whatever comes up. I, I let them know that I'm there prior to, that they're safe, that this is a round trip ticket. And then upon return, after the hour, I take off the headset and invite the person to remain with the eye fold on just to, to continue to uh, support an inner journey and to support the inner exploration. 
and we'll, we'll start to make meaning and anchor in what was supportive, what wants to be worked with and moved forward from an integration perspective. I always try to check in with clients after a session like that, like 24 to 36 hours afterwards. I also give them some homework with a little journal with prompts around like the integration of the experience. Uh, people like to integrate often by re-listening to the, to the music, journaling, you know, just healthy ways of being slowing down time in nature, rest, hot baths, et cetera. And I also generally prescribe four to six sessions with medicine, generally spaced about a week apart. Uh, this is because, as you all know, the, there are certain sticky habits that are hard to, to, to disrupt. And so we need to consistently challenge that with this kind of intervention. I have people that often come back for tune-ups uh, and some people need like just one session for profound impact. Some people need like 12, you know, it, it, there is no one size fits all protocol in these realms. Um, but, but the average for me is four to six. And, and then with, with the, the lower dose, it's, uh, it's similar. I, I very much meet individuals where they are, but like I said, these, this medicine is really, really good for suicidality, end-of-life care, OCD, eating disorders, treatment-resistant depression, treatment-resistant anxiety. And, and when I say the word treatment-resistant, and this is common language and jargon in the clinical field, it's not that an individual is resisting treatment, but it's that the treatment isn't working. And we all want to be well. And, and in our efforts to like protect ourselves, we often develop a lot of misguided kind of defense mechanisms and, and patterns and ways of being and thinking and behaving that, that end up causing us pain. Beautiful. And what does working with you look like? Do, are you, are you currently taking clients? Do they have to be seen with you first in, um, like as in your, in your practice regularly first, like what does the establishment of that look like before you'll move into ketamine? With yeah. Them? So I am, very much a, like a therapist first. There, there's no medicine until there's relationship. And that's so that I feel comfortable and so that the client feels comfortable. It, I got to know who's who in your zoo, where you're looking to go and grow. We need to know each other. And, and I really invite individuals who might be looking for this kind of work to be in the space of interviewing their therapist. And, you know, I, I, I have, I had a client once who told me that she worked with a therapist for years that she didn't like. And this, she told me on our first meeting. And I said, I said, you know, listen closely, like you're in charge. And if you don't like me, you do not have to come back here. Right. So, so that's true for anybody. You really want to assess for like an accurate fit and, and also build rapport before you really open to spiritual surgery, which this work is in my mind. Um, I have a small group practice with some therapists that work with me. Uh, I'm very grateful to have heart centered providers that I get to support in the widening of this work. I am pretty full. Uh, I, 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 make, I make occasional exceptions, but I am efforting to really focus my energies on my educational programs and on uh, the prayer of a book about psychoactives in the family and what works and doesn't work in, in the field of health and healing. So um, that, that congratulations. Thanks. We're looking forward to Me it. Me too. Yeah. So I have one last question for you and like, thank you so much for your time. It's really been an honor. I can't wait for another conversation. Um, what does rebellious reinvention mean to you? I mean, I, 
my dad tells me that he's proud of me for going in the direction of my own direction. And in a world that is always asking us to be something other than what we are, it is super renegade to, to really, really love yourself, to listen to yourself, to, to follow yourself, to, to like, you know, the proverbial like yourself. And, and, and I do, and I have reinvented myself, like in ways that maybe I, I, I feel more authentic than ever. I feel hotter and sexier and more fun and on, on than ever. And, and that is a hundred percent because I have uh, taken the time to examine, to feel, to heal and on the wings of many things, including yoga, including therapy, including ketamine and ayahuasca and many things in between. And uh, to be in good relationships with people like you who are, you know, doing big things and inspiring me and yeah, that's rebellious reinvention. It's like just doing you in, in a way that, that is um, in good relationship with everything else. I love that. I love the word renegade. Yeah. Ah, it's so good. It. it makes me teary-eyed every time I listen to people's interpretation. Mm. It's just so beautiful. It's like just really resonates and touches my heart. Thank you so much for your time, Lauren. And I really can't wait for another conversation. I would love to have you back and really dig into psychedelics in the future and like what does trainings look like? And there's just so much happening in the field. It's really exciting, like the advocacy work, et cetera. But I wanted to get to know you on a more personal level and just share with people, you know, how, how your work came about. I think the lineage that your family has is just incredible. And one day that's going to go down in history too. So thank you for sharing so vulnerably. Thank you for receiving and listening and having me. And yes, please, let's do it again. Awesome. Have an amazing day. Thank you, Lauren. You too. Bye. Bye.